Glad you're here with us today. And I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 4. And with all the kids, let me just let you know, um, I have three young children. And so I've learned to live life with a noise in the background that just it becomes nothing, pretty much. So I know how to do away with that noise. I don't hear it anymore. Um, so that being said, please stay in here uh, as much as you are possible and, and uh, take that for what it's worth. All right, the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 4. I told the elders this morning, uh, you'll even notice in your bulletin, it says that I'm going through this first part of verse 5. That's not true. Uh, I tried to do that. I actually originally was going to go through verse 7. That didn't happen. Then beginning of verse 5, that didn't happen either. So we're focusing on simply verse 4. Uh, It's going to be one verse this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. So let's read what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's read it together this morning. You ready? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Simple words with an incredibly difficult application. Would you agree? What's been happening so far in the book of Philippians? Well, we've been going, if you haven't been here, we've been going through the book of Philippians from the very beginning, every verse, every word, up until this point. And so we've arrived at chapter 4, verse 4. And what, what has been said so far, one, one thing I want to focus on in, in particular is this idea of imperatives in the scriptures. Imperatives we might understand as commands, commands to us, explicit commands, not something that's implied, but something that is explicitly said, do this in the text. How many times has that happened before in the book of Philippians? Does it happen a lot? Does it not happen very much at all? It happens actually 16 times before we arrive at chapter 4, verse 4. 16 times. Maybe you'll remember these. Verse, chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's an imperative. Chapter 2, verse 1, complete my joy. Do it. Chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's an imperative to us. Chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without Oh, come on. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You should be glad and rejoice with me. That's in chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 29, receive him in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's 3. Chapter 3, verse 17, join in imitating me. Again in verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example. Chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm thus in the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 2, help these women. That's what it says. And in that, last week, the sermon was titled, Agree in the Lord. 
you weren't here for that, I want to strongly recommend and encourage you, please, go back and listen to that because so much of what is being said in this ties its context back to the sermon last week as it should because our text finds its context in the text from last week, right? Because no text is without a context. We discussed the context in great detail last week. Okay, so we have a series here, beginning in chapter four, verse four, a series of just a bunch of imperatives, one after another, which hasn't happened so far in this book. They've kind of been spaced out. But instead, what's been happening is that Paul will explain a circumstance and then he will give them commands based on their circumstances. And it's going back and forth. You're seeing circumstances explained. And then now that we've explained those circumstances, do this in light of those circumstances. And we've kind of had this dance back and forth between the two ideas so far. Here's what's going on. Now live this way. Oh, that's happening to you? Well, then live this way. Here's what's happening to me, but think this way about it. You see what I'm saying? And so he's going back and forth over and over about here's what's going on, here's how you're to live. Let me tell you, this idea of commands, imperatives, I've, I've been listening, I keep bringing this up, but I keep listening to all these sermons because I'm doing preparation for, for Wednesday nights and we're talking about uh, hermeneutics. Don't know what that word is, come on Sunday nights. Or we don't have Sunday nights. Come on Wednesday nights. Uh, but I've, I've been listening to a lot of sermons and one thing that I have found that is tying many modern sermons together is this, the lack of imperatives. Maybe more specifically said, a lack of biblical imperatives. The word of God says this and so you must do this. No, that's not what I'm hearing. What I'm hearing a lot of is it would be good What if we all thought this way about it? Let's think this way. And it's more of a coming alongside and here's the best idea I've got. Let's let's do this. I think this is a good idea. But what's lacking is, here is what the word of God says and it says it to us in such a way that it is a command to us. Now why might preaching lack commands? Because who likes to be told what to do? Do you like to be told what to do? No. I don't like to be told what to do. I think Chris McManus just said yes. You do. You do. <laughs> tell me what to do. I don't know. I just work here. I just tell me what to do. But because groups of people don't like hearing, you must do this in light of this, groups of people don't like to hear that. Who's going to come back to listen to that? Well, if we don't tell them that, then I bet you the masses will keep coming back. Let me tell you, the word of God gives commands. It is not commands in the sense unto salvation other than you are commanded to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That is a command unto salvation. Once we have salvation, there are no commands that come at us that say, and so do this so that you might keep your eternal life. That's That's not the case because there is one salvation imperative that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But there are imperatives to the Christian life. One thing I really want you to walk away with so far is knowing this, that the Christian life has imperatives from the word of God, things that we must do, things that we don't have a choice about. 
Do you know that? Do you know that there are things in the word of God that whether you like it or not, the word of God says to do it and so you must? Why? Because we have a master and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is giving these commands. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. Commanding them, teaching them all that I have commanded you. The disciples of Jesus Christ are be taught the commands of Christ. But maybe it will bring joy to your heart to know that one of the commands is rejoice in the Lord. Did the weight and the burden of commands just fall from you? <laughs> oh, I don't like to be told what to do. Rejoice in the Lord. No, I don't like that. You can't tell me what to do. It's tell me to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord is not the best thing for you to do. It is what you are told to do by your Savior. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. I'll say it again. Rejoice when? Always. What does this mean? Let's look at it a little bit closer. Um, As we start to look at it, I, I want to draw a parallel here because this is in some way how Paul closes many of his letters with these rapid fire imperatives. And I just want to give you one example from 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Look at how similar it is. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another. What were we supposed to do last week? Agree in the Lord. And then now we have rejoice, live in peace. That's coming in the text in Philippians not too far from now. And so all of these things are a rapid fire succession imperatives. Now, in light of all that I've said, this is the last chapter of, of 2 Corinthians, by the way. And so this is the last chapter of the book of Philippians. And so now, in light of all that's been said, rejoice in the Lord. He's already said this to us once, Philippians 3.1, rejoice in the Lord. My computer had a problem with me this morning because the title of the sermon was Rejoice in the Lord. And why did it have a problem with me? I already had a sermon titled Rejoice in the Lord from the book of Philippians. But if Paul has told us once and then he says, and I tell you again, then we'll do it again. It's a different sermon though. Of all the imperatives in the letter of Philippians, there is only one that is repeated. Rejoice in the Lord. We'll say this. Those who are found in Christ are commanded to rejoice in Christ. Is that said simply enough? That is the sphere in which you are to find your rejoicing is in the Lord. If that language doesn't make sense to you, please go back and listen to last week. Because the sphere in which we are to agree is in the Lord. The sphere in which we are to rejoice is in the Lord. But we covered that idea last week, and so we're going to take a different spin on it this week. And that is this. What is the alternative to rejoicing in the Lord? I'm going to have a passage on the screen for you. Matthew 13, 44. Look at what it says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field 
which a man found and he covered it up. Why would you do that? Then he, in, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Listen to the second part. In his joy, he went and took everything that he owned and he sold it because there was something more valuable for him in buying that field. Christ is the treasure. Christ is the great treasure that everything else in this whole world fails in comparison to Jesus Christ. And so we might summarize it this way. When we recognize the true value of Christ, all other efforts for joy become meaningless. But you might say, I don't know, I I find joy in things. I find joy in waking up at five o'clock in the morning and having coffee in a white cup. A white cup. Why? I don't know. My wife thinks it's weird too. I agree. I mean, it's just, I don't know why a white cup, but I just enjoy, I take joy out of having coffee in the morning when it's quiet in a white cup. Should I not find joy in that because my joy is to be found in Christ and in Christ alone? You understand the conflict we might have with this idea? You who have children, listen, I'm not saying every moment of every day, but do you find joy in your children? Are you not to find joy in your children because your joy is to be found in Christ? Do you find joy in your spouse? Or are you not to find joy in your spouse because you find joy in Christ? The two things don't exist apart from one another, but in one another. That is, I can take the most amount of joy out of my coffee if it is found in Christ. What does that mean? That I'm giving thanks to God for such a creation, for such a moment that he has provided for me. And that even if this is taken away from me, I still have joy. But you know what? I have joy in this because it is of Christ. I have joy in my marriage because God has given it to me. I have joy in my children because God has given me these children. I find joy in these things in Christ. Let all you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, can I find joy in things outside of Christ? Can people of the world find joy without Christ? What do you think about that? Is there anybody else in this whole world who gets joy out of drinking coffee out of a white cup in the morning? Maybe. That's possible. Are there other people who take joy out of their children who are not Christians? How can they do that if all our joy is in Christ? What I'm trying to create for you is some kind of dilemma in our thinking. What is the distinctive of Christian joy to worldly joy? And what type of joy are we to have? This is the season of joy, isn't it? Right? Isn't Christmas the season of joy? Isn't that what all our Christmas cards say? Joy, merry and bright, tis the season to be merry. What? It's the joy. It's a lot of stuff just says joy now. Like Christmas decorations it just says joy. And it's because it's a joyful season. Doesn't it? kind of bother you that our culture thinks there is a season dedicated to joy as if all the other seasons are not 
for the Christian. Every season of your life is a season dedicated to joy. How can that be? It can be so in Christ. By the way, I will say the command here is not be a happy person. Be a happy person in Christ. I will say again, be a happy person. Is that what it says? No, it says rejoice in the Lord. Is there a distinction? Is there a difference? 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there was a time of suffering and what they were being called to is rejoicing in their time of suffering. So although you may be suffering and it takes away my happiness momentarily, what you're still doing in that moment is finding a joy in Christ. How do you do that? I've been asking a lot of questions that are rhetorical with no answer given yet, I understand. But that's the question I want us to ask. How do you do that? What does it mean? I like the words you're saying. Rejoice all the time. Great, I want that. Give that to me. But what does it actually mean to rejoice all the time? Our rejoicing is found in hope. It's established in hope. And that's something that Paul has been establishing for us from the beginning of this letter. And so uh, I want you to follow with me um, a little bit here in our notes, okay? Rejoice in the hope of Christ. Skip those couple for now. Rejoice in the hope of Christ, okay? And so we're going to look at a couple of ideas here. And the first being this, is that there is hope for the unbelieving world. This is something that Paul has been telling us so far. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What is Paul rejoicing at? The fact that Christ is proclaimed in the world and that there is hope for them. One way that we live in this world rejoicing is knowing that there is hope for the unbelieving world that they might believe. How do you find joy, for example, in a Christmas gathering knowing that the majority of the people sitting around you and your family don't know Christ? Does that take away your joy? But there is a way to live in this world with joy even though there are those who are unbelieving and the hope is this. The power of the gospel is able to overcome their belief, their unbelief. There is hope for them. There is hope for the unbelieving world. Christ is proclaimed. We can rejoice when we see this happening in the world around us. We know there's hope for humanity. It's through the gospel, but there is hope. Humanity is not lost or void of all hope. Tell me though, in the world around you, do you encounter people who think the world is hopeless? Things are just hopeless. It's all going downhill. 
and we better do something to save it. Is that a true statement or a false statement? That's a false statement. We don't need to do anything to save the world. Jesus Christ has saved it. We need to point them to the one that they should place their hope in. And it doesn't come through any person or any system. Our hope is not placed in people. Our hope is not placed in a nation. You understand that? Our hope is placed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his person and in his work. In the beginning of the book of John, it says something here that I just want to draw your attention to. Listen to what it says. This is John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. There is hope for this world, and it is in Jesus Christ. The reason we bring this point up here is because this is something that Paul has already told us. There's only a few places where Paul says, I rejoice in that, in the book of Philippians. And when he tells us to rejoice, let's reflect back on what Paul has been rejoicing in. What is one thing that Paul has been rejoicing in? That there is hope for the unbelieving world. If you live in this world and you think things are hopeless, that is going to rob you of joy. But what the scriptures are calling us to is to have joy in all circumstances, knowing, first of all, that there is hope for the unbelieving world. And the second is this, that there is hope for the believer's temporary circumstances. Are you caught in a circumstance that is robbing you of joy? It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. is, is, it, is are you caught in a circumstance that is robbing you of joy? I don't like thinking about that. I don't like being around it. I don't like talking about it. I would rather just avoid it altogether. Or if you're on the other side of this, you talk about it all the time and everything is about that and you can't get away from that. It's what you think about. It's what you talk about. It's what you complain about. Everything is about this because it's robbing you of joy. And we only get to that position when we feel as though there is no hope for our circumstance. Does the Bible, do the scriptures tell us that there is hope for our temporary circumstances or does the Bible only say that there's hope for, for the future, like for just in heaven, that's your only hope. Just wait until heaven and then things will be okay. There's no hope for now. There's only hope for later. Is that what the Bible teaches? Because that's often what I hear people saying, but under their breath. They say there's, there's hope for later, but I just kind of have to suffer through now. Is that what the rest of Scripture teaches? Why am I bringing this point up? Because Paul has been asking them to pray for his deliverance from prison. Do you remember that? Listen to what it says. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the, deliver and the help of the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. Okay, what is he expecting? And in his rejoicing, what is he anticipating? 
that his earthly circumstances are going to change. He has hope for circumstances that they might be altered, that they might change. This is in agreement with John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Or how about James 1, 2 through 8? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, what does that have to do with right now? It's because your circumstances produce something in you. So is there hope for your circumstance? Yes. Should you be praying about your circumstance? Yes. What's going to follow here is, and, and you have to connect what I'm saying here with what we're going to be saying soon, because in verse 6, which I originally tended to preach on as well, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so he's talking about what? Don't do anything now, but just wait until heaven. That's where all your comfort is found, is in heaven. Well, yes, comfort is in heaven, but it doesn't mean we are void of comfort today. It doesn't mean we are void of our circumstances changing today. If you feel as though your circumstances are not going to change and that you're trapped and that God doesn't care about your circumstances, is that going to give you joy? Or is it going to give you sorrow? It's going to give you sorrow because you say, I can't wait until I die already because that is when I'm going to find comfort finally. Now, you will find true comfort in heaven, no doubt about it, but it doesn't mean you are void of comfort today and now. Your God is near to you. He is here. He is so near that he actually takes up residence within you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you, but I will be with you. God is near to us. He is not far. He is near. He is right here. And actually, he is concerned about your circumstances. So when you face circumstances, count it all joy. Again, I'll ask, are there circumstances in your life that you feel trapped by? And that is causing you to complain in your soul, in your mind, and then it seeps out of your mouth and you start to complain to those around you. And then your just whole disposition is just complaining, I'm defeated, uh, and which for some leads into a serious depression potentially it definitely leads to anxiety that we bring about by our thoughts because you feel as though you're trapped and I got to figure out a way for myself to get myself out of this mess because nobody else cares about my mess I'm alone and when I can't get myself out of my mess I, I have so much anxiety I don't know how to bear it I certainly am not having joy you have been commanded by your savior to rejoice in all circumstances. And us having thoughts that leads us away from that is being disobedient to the Savior. What a weird thought, right? Jesus Christ wants us to be rejoicing people, but not rejoicing just in our circumstances. And here is the thing that divides Christian joy from worldly joy, and you know what it is. Worldly joy is circumstance-based joy. 
Only when things are going well, sorry, I don't mean to leave you guys out. I'm not looking over there at all. Circumstantial joy is what the world knows, and it's all that the world knows. So when things are going well, I'm super happy. But when things are going bad, I am so depressed, don't get around me. And I'm, I'm over here with my circumstances, and when they go down, I'm over here with my circumstances. This is worldly joy because all they have, listen, all the world has are their temporary circumstances. That's all they have. That's not all you have. You get that. This is not all that you have. We have far more than temporary circumstances. We are called to rejoice in our temporary circumstances knowing that it is not hopeless. You're not dependent on yourself for your circumstances. We are dependent on God. And whether our circumstances change, they go up or they go down, I will rejoice in the Lord knowing he is the Lord not only of my life but also of this circumstance that I find myself in. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice always. The world does not know this kind of joy, but you do. And it's not something that you can just say, no, I'm going to complain when things are bad and I'm going to be upset about it. And then when things go good, then I'm going to rejoice and I'll get back to my whole reading the Bible and praying, going to church and being happy. But until then, until my circumstances change, I'm not going to do those things. You're not finding your rejoicing in Christ. You're finding your rejoicing in your circumstances only. If you find your rejoicing in Christ, you will always be rejoicing. I say it as if it's easy, right? I say it as if I've mastered it, right? Yeah. I don't think so. But this is the word of God to us, yes? Okay, but not only that. It doesn't stop at that. So there's hope for the unbelieving world. Paul has been telling us about this. There's hope for your temporary circumstance. Paul has been telling us about that in this letter. But another thing that he has been telling us is that there is hope not only for temporary circumstances, but also for the believer's eternal circumstances. Whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Has he been telling us about the now and the later? He's been telling us about the temporary and the eternal, hasn't he? And he's saying, rejoice always in all these circumstances. Rejoice. Why? Because there's hope for now and there's hope for later and there's hope for the world around you. There is hope. You get it? It's hope. There is hope. You are not without hope this morning. No matter what circumstance you are in, you are not without hope because you have Jesus Christ. You are not without hope in the world. But that is the world. You see, that's where we were. We were hopeless without God in the world. That is word for word scripture. That's where we lived. We were hopeless. But now you are not hopeless. So has your disposition changed about life then? Before I was hopeless, so I always got to be upset about my circumstances. But now I'm not hopeless, so now I can rejoice in all my circumstances. If only we could communicate that to our heart always. If only we could live in Christ. And isn't this the theme we've been going back to? You are in Christ now. Live as someone who is in Christ, right? 
Now, I've said that there's no hope for the world around us, but you can get around this by doing what? By inserting false hope. If you look around the world, you're going to see that there are different ways and means of inserting false hope into an otherwise hopeless world. Do not set up for yourself false examples that lead you to believe that there, are, there is more hope outside of Jesus Christ. We don't need Jesus Christ and hope of something else. We don't need Jesus Christ and a paycheck. We don't need Jesus Christ and perfect relationships. We don't need Jesus Christ and something else to give us rejoicing. We need Jesus Christ alone for our rejoicing. John 16, 22. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. But we seem to rob ourselves of our own joy. It's as if there is joy handed to us. Here, here's your joy. And I take possession of it and I forget that I have joy. I forget that I'm to be rejoicing. I get so focused on the here and now that I, I forget that I'm, I'm holding joy. I have joy. In all these circumstances, I have joy. No one can take me. No one can take this joy away from me. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad when there is evil coming upon me. Rejoice when trials and testing come upon me as if something strange were happening to me. Yes. But there's more. Last thing here. Not only rejoice in the hope of Christ, there's another thing that we've been taught throughout this entire letter is rejoice in the body of Christ. I'll show you in two places. Philippians 2.28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again that, and that I may be less anxious. Who is that talking about? Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was with Paul where he was in prison and he belonged to the church in Philippi, and he was sending Epaphroditus back to carry this very letter with him back to the church. And he's saying, listen, I'm sending him back to you so that you may have cause for rejoicing. But I thought we were to only rejoice in Christ. Yes, true. But there's something special about the relationship there. Because Epaphroditus belongs to the body of Christ. It's simple when we put it this way. We find joy in the church. Why? Because it is Christ's body. Are you finding joy in Christ when you find joy in the body of Christ? If you remove yourself from the body of Christ, you are removing yourself from a source that God has instituted for your joy. I get the frustration and the gungus mooing and the discontentment with all of our circumstances regarding the church. That we like to complain and there's sinful people there and it's, uh, you know, it's just church is church. It just is what it is. I'm happier just God and me. But as I've said, the entire book of Philippians doesn't make sense if you remove yourself from the body of Christ. 
It is about a unified group of people who are in Christ giving glory to God and learning how to get along. And how do we get along? In the Lord. In the Lord. Not only that, but he's going to tell us in chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoice greatly that you have revived your concern for me. There's another sense that Paul is rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing here? Because the church is concerned for him and he finds joy in that. Listen, have you ever experienced someone in the church being concerned for your welfare and it gave you what sense? Joy. But in the body of Christ, can we very easily, in not being a functioning part of the body, deprive others of what God intended by not giving them encouragement? Do you see how that could happen? So if we want to be a body of Christ who is giving joy to the other parts of the body of Christ, what do you need to be doing? Encouraging one another and being present. Being present would help a whole lot. Being here among the body of Christ, speaking truth into people's lives, encouraging them, letting them know that you actually are concerned for their welfare, what's going on in their life. This is not outside of what the scriptures are telling us. This is exactly what the letter of Philippians has been telling us. We find joy in the body of Christ. We're going to end this morning by looking at 1 John chapter 5. If this is your first time here with us, by the way, this sermon is a little different because I'm tying pieces together that we've been studying together as a church for 26 weeks. 26 weeks so far through the book of Philippians. And so I'm, I'm, I'm taking pieces and I'm saying, we studied this from the word Now, do you see him putting it into action? We talked about this. Now, do you see it? He said it over here, chapter three, verse one, and now we're we're over here. And so he's taking all these things he's been talking about and now he's saying, now rejoice in the Lord. And so that's kind of why we're doing a, a summary to bring us back to the whole context of the letter, okay? But I'd like to, to end together in 1 John 5, one through five. Listen to what it says. Did you turn there in your Bible? Because I want you to see it. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Do you see it stated as a reality, first of all? Do you see that stated as a truth? That it's not undone, it's, it's, a tr- it's, it's here, it's in the present, it's now. It's, you, can't, you can't say that you love God and not love the children of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Do you see it? By this we know that we love God and we are the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. What are one of the commandments that we're learning about in this moment? That we rejoice in the Lord. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What? And this is the victory that, that, that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Faith in what? Faith in the hope of Jesus Christ. Faith in the hope of eternity. Faith in the hope that God has my circumstances in his hands. Faith in the hope that there is, there is hope for this world around us. Do you see it continually coming over and over and presenting itself to you? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in Jesus that he is the son of God? We cannot live in the world and overcome the world. We cannot be in the world and be a rejoicing people without hope in Jesus Christ. And here's why I labor this point, not only because the text does, but it's also this, because I want to be an encouragement to you to not be like the world around you. There are so many in the world around us who are dissatisfied with the world. They're grumblers, they're complainers, they're malcontents. These are all words that scripture uses. They, they, they are dissatisfied with everything. They're frustrated with the world. They're mad at this, they're mad at that. It's always something is wrong. This is not good for the Christian soul. You understand that. And this is not the way of thinking that Christians are commanded to think. And this is the very place that he's moving. Think about these things. Here's how you should think. That's coming in Philippians. Here, set your mind on these things, the things which are good, the things which are true, the things which are lovely. No, no, no. The world around me sets their sights on what is bad and what is ugly and complains about them. But this is not us. This is not who we are to be as God's people. But we are to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of all our circumstances. We're to be a joyful people, a joyful people in the Lord. And so when you leave this gathering today, I just really want to encourage you. I know this is the season of joy, but for many people, they are looking at this circumstance of Christmas with presents and family and food, and this is their reason for joy. Our reason for joy is found in Jesus Christ. And our reason for joy doesn't depend upon our circumstances. You need to live as an example to the world that this type of joy is in your heart. And so when you face circumstances and you grumble and complain and are discontent about your circumstances, is this showing the people around you that you have an eternal joy and rejoicing in Jesus Christ who is sovereign over your circumstances? Or is it doing the exact opposite and showing them, actually, I don't have hope. Actually, I don't have hope for the world around me. Actually, I don't have hope for my circumstances. But in reality, we do. And I know that we do but we have to be reminded to do so. And it's not just a good idea. It's a command of Jesus Christ himself to rejoice always, always. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and very simple words this morning found in the letter to the Philippian church. And I pray, Lord, that you would let such simple words sink deep into our hearts this morning 
I pray that your truth would awaken hearts in this room, that it would set us before you knowing that all of our thoughts and all of our dispositions, all of our feelings, all of our intentions are laid out before you anyway. We cannot hide the fact from you that our hearts are discontent and don't have joy. So God, I pray that we would be honest with those things and that we would set our hope on Jesus Christ and not on our circumstance. That we would set our hope in Christ knowing, Lord, that you have promised us comfort and peace as we're going to look at together next week. That you have promised us, Lord, that you will be near to us, that you are near to us, that we have no reason to have anxiety. God, because you care about us. We thank you for that. I pray that as we sing now together, that the words of this song, that we would resonate with the truth here in such a way that we are proclaiming these things to you as true. We ask together in Jesus' name, amen.